Welcome, everybody, to the Free Mind Podcast, where we discuss philosophic and political ideas with adventurous disregard for intellectual trends. I'm Shiloh Brooks from the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and I'm joined today by Bob Pasnow, who was director of that center from 2011 to 2019 and is currently professor of distinction in the Department of Philosophy. Today, we discuss how our unlikely center got started and how its mission to foster free inquiry and heterodox ideas and diverse political perspectives has affected academic life at CU and across the nation. Bob, welcome. Thanks for being here with us. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, the history of the Benson Center, uh, its genesis, how it began, and your role. So can you give us an account of just how did this very odd center in higher education, how did this get off the ground? How did this thing start at CU? Yeah, it's a complicated history. It goes back to 2006 when something began that at that time was called the Center for Western Civilization, uh, which was originally uh, directed by a classicist uh, here by the name of Christian Kopf. Now, my involvement starts up in 2011, at at which point uh, Todd Gleason, who was then the Dean of Arts and Sciences, called me into his office and he said, Bob, how'd you like to run this, this thing, this Center for Western Civ? I hadn't actually even heard of it back then. I, I didn't know what it was. It didn't have a lot of money. Uh, it wasn't much involved in anything I was interested in. But uh, I have, um, you know, my whole life I've been trying to promote Western civilization, uh, I suppose, in every sense of the of the expression. And I thought, well, why not? It's got a little bit of money, which is more money than I had to, you know, to my name as a scholar. And I thought, you know, maybe I can do some good with that. Uh, And so I took this thing over. Uh, Our budget the first year was around $46,000, which I thought was a lot of money. And we uh, had some speakers in and we funded some students doing work in the Western Civ tradition. It it wasn't particularly political at that point. That that wasn't really my vision or my mission. I just I just thought I believe in Western Civ and uh, there's some funding behind this and I'll, I'll try to make the most of it. And things went along in that way for a few years, and it wasn't a tremendous amount of work, and it, I think it did some good for some people. And then things started to change uh, about five years later. I think this was um, in, in 2016, when I sat down with Patty Limerick, who's the director of the Center of the American West, and Bruce Benson, who was the president of the university at that time. And they said, you know, Bob, we've got this other program that we run, uh, the Conservative uh, Thought and Policy Program. And I, of course, knew about this program. This program was quite uh, famous on campus. I, I, I almost said notorious. It's uh, depends on who you talk to, whether it was famous or notorious. Uh, this was a program that had started in 2013 that brought in a visiting scholar for the year under the heading Visiting Scholar in Conservative Thought and Policy. And a series of impressive folk had come in um, year after year to do this. Uh, it had only been for a few years at this point. And, and Bruce's idea, uh, Bruce Benson's idea that um, I think he had, in fact, gotten from Patty Limerick was, why not take this Center for Western Civ program and put it together with the conservative thought and policy program? And then you'd really have a center And so Bruce spelled out this vision for me, and I kind of gulped a few times and thought, yeah, that that might work. And so beginning in 2016, we had this much, much larger and broader-based enterprise going, this, uh, this project to both promote the study of Western civilization, 
but also to promote some broader sort of intellectual diversity on campus that brought that involved bringing conservatives to campus to express viewpoints that weren't otherwise being heard from. And at this point, the center really started to grow because there was a lot of enthusiasm among alumni, among the larger community for the conservative scholars program. People also liked the idea of focusing this around the Western Civ tradition. Um, and so from that point forward, our budget has just grown by leaps and bounds year after year. Um, and, and now it's become, uh, it's become a multi-million dollar you know, annual budget. That's you know, a very atypical story, it seems to me, of a center like this in higher ed. It starts out so small, and then now it's it's so gigantic and never has its mission been more relevant. And in some of the earlier episodes of the podcast, we've talked about the mission of the center. And you mentioned that um, you had taken over the center in 2011. Was the mission of the center in 2011 what it is now? That is to say, in 2011, was there concern with you know, representation of diverse viewpoints on campus, um, which has now kind of been yoked to the center's perhaps original mission of just simply the study of the Western intellectual tradition. And how did it come about that the center began to sort of be interested, not just in the study of, say, uh, Socrates up through uh, Heidegger or something like this, the kind of Western canon, but how did it also uh, become the sort of institution which tries to represent diverse speech and viewpoints on campus? Yeah, I think, I think these were initially conceived as separate enterprises. Um, the, the Western Civ Initiative came of worries about folk that um, that aspect of our intellectual heritage wasn't being taken seriously enough on campus. And, and that, by the way, I, I think in a way that that was never really the case. I, I, I think it can look to an outsider as if the University of Colorado has gotten so swept up into more, you know, fashionable um, global issues that it doesn't even pay attention to the Western Civ tradition anymore. But really, if you look, if you go department by department and you look at the faculty, you'll find the vast majority of folk uh, on the history faculty, on the English faculty, on all of the literature faculties and the philosophy faculty, the vast majority of people are working in some aspect of the Western Civ tradition. So I just always conceived of the, the my mission as director of the, the Center for Western Civ as just be to try to kind of pull those people together and, and give them a kind of voice and give them some support so that they could just do better the things that they that they wanted to do anyway. But but that was that so that was sort of one side uh, to this, and then there was this other side that was the conservative thought and policy program, and, and I think. That program, part of what made it controversial was it, it looked very, very narrow. You know, it looked as if all it wanted to do was bring a token conservative to campus for the year. And, and I mean, that enabled us to bring some really interesting people to campus. But the, those people, they would come to campus and they'd just be completely isolated. They'd have an office somewhere and they'd teach a couple of classes, but they didn't really have any connection to, uh, to, to any sort of broader um, institution. Um, and, and so uh, it, it made the program have this sort of funny kind of ad hoc feel to it. Um, and I, I think the really clever idea 
of joining the two was to see that that these, um, although they needn't be joined, there's a lot of synergy that comes from thinking of, the, of promoting the, the, the Western intellectual tradition as um, allied with this idea uh, of promoting intellectual diversity. And so uh, pulling them together just, um, it, it, it created a lot of possibilities for doing much more. And we've been, we've been, I think, trying to take advantage of that ever since. So it makes sense that the center, a center which is devoted to the study of the Western philosophic tradition, especially insofar as that tradition features the, the groundwork of liberalism, it makes sense that, that a center interested in that would also be interested in the pursuit of truth no matter where uh, it leads us. And so in that sense, free speech, free inquiry, uh, liberal education, and the things required to pursue truth. Those in some ways seem to me to walk hand in hand with certain high points of the Western intellectual tradition. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's an argument that I think has been effective around here in as much as, uh, as I was saying, a lot of the faculty work in precisely that Western intellectual tradition. And so when you invoke somebody like John Locke to them and talk about Locke's conceptions of freedom, it, it, it makes a lot of sense to them, really, that um, a center devoted to those ideals should also care about open inquiry and free speech and should, should have the sort of mission we do. In practice, they don't always like it, but, uh, but in principle, uh, I, I think they, they, they see that the argument's compelling. That makes sense to me. And it, it makes sense, uh, I would suspect, in 2016, which seems to me to be the sort of lightning strike year for the center. It's the, the year when the study of the Western intellectual tradition collides with the need for, uh, or at least the opportunity to champion uh, free speech and free inquiry on campus. That collision happens, uh, as you said, in large part as a consequence of the center taking on programming for the, the visiting conservative scholar and some of the events that are attached to that. So that genesis um, and the kind of wedding of these two issues makes, makes a lot of sense. Was it difficult for you to sell this change in the center to particularly the administration, uh, faculty, and folks like that? Well, the, the administration has always been completely behind this. Of course, it helped a great deal that for President Benson, this was one of the central focuses of his, um, of, of his interactions with, with, with the Boulder campus. It was one of his central, central goals to get this center really on a solid foundation. And of course, we also had a lot of support from the level of the regents. And so given that support from the top, um, it was easy for administrators to get behind it. But I also think, I mean, beyond just wanting to follow the chain of command, I, I think people like Phil DeStefano, the chancellor, they really sort of saw the good of this. They, they really believe in it. And they've always been um, completely supportive. So, so, so that's been great. The, the, faculty, the faculty have at least always been very nice about it, to me at least. Nobody, uh, nobody sends me hate mail. Nobody, you know, I keep waiting to get hate mail. Nobody, nobody ever sends me hate mail. Nobody, if they're giving me dirty looks, I, I guess I'm oblivious to them. And I, and I think a lot of the faculty not just are not hostile, but they, they actually do see that it's a valuable thing. Of course, the faculty here is overwhelmingly liberal, not exclusively, but but largely liberal. But but even so, those folk kind of get the idea that, that a university, particularly the State University of Colorado, 
can't just make one side of the argument. It's, it's, it's not good for the students. It's not good for the institution. It's, it's not good for the faculty in, in as much as they want to engage in, in lively intellectual inquiry. And so I think people really do get that it's, it's for the common good that we're bringing in the kind of people we're bringing in to, uh, to express these other sorts of viewpoints. That's good to hear. And, you know, I would certainly say now more than ever, the mission as of the center as it was conceived in 2016 uh, is important. And it seems to me to be uh, of enduring importance. I assume that in 2011, you know, when you came on board and the center was still small and you mentioned the small budget and these kinds of things, there weren't, I, I'm assuming, a, a large number of students involved. How did you develop student programming over the years? And in what way have you reached out to, to undergraduates? And what has their response been? We know the administration was for it, the faculty perhaps is cautiously optimistic about it. What, what do the students think? Right. That's, been, that's really been one of the challenges. Of course, in the end, that's what it's all about, is, is connecting with students. That's what the university's here for. That's what, that's what the center is trying to do. But, but in a lot of ways, Kind of ironically, that's the hardest group to reach because, you know, faculty are kind of attuned to these sorts of things and they're used to going to talks and being engaged in this sort of way. And, and we've also had a great response from the community. We get so many people from the community coming to our events and such enthusiasm. But students can be a bit hard to reach because... You know, they're in class all day long. And so when you propose some sort of extracurricular activity to them, it can be something of a hard sell. You know, I mean, for a lot of them, the last thing they want to do is go sit in a classroom for another hour or two after they've had classes all day. And so we, we, we've done a lot of different things to try to engage students. The, the most obvious thing we do is that we, we're simply getting our people into the classroom. And every 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 year, as the center's grown, we've we've been able to offer more and more classes. Uh, the visiting scholars all teach for us. We've got various postdocs who now are joining the center who teach for us. So, in any given year, we might be offering a dozen or so classes. That's just you know a drop in the bucket in terms of the size of the university. But I, I think it makes a real difference. It you know it sends out this signal that that these issues are being taken seriously. And, and and by offering classes like that, what you find is that there are students out there, lots and lots of students out there that are really very very eager to hear these kind of debates and and discussions happen. You know the, the faculty tilts to the left, the student body a little bit tilts to the left. But there are lots and lots of conservative students at the University of Colorado, and there are even more students who don't know what they are. You know, they may have come from a conservative or a liberal family, but they themselves haven't made up their mind. And they really, they really want to hear both sides of these issues. And I hear all the time the complaint that they're not getting both sides of, of, of the issues in their classes. This is the thing I say that my, my colleagues on the faculty get maddest with me about, because they all say, no, 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 that's not right. We, we teach both sides of the issue. And, and, I, and a lot of them do. I, I, I don't mean to you know, uh, pass judgment on all of them. I, I would even go so far as to say most of them really try hard to do that. But there's a significant number that just do not try, or if they're trying, they're failing. And the students notice they don't like it. They feel the way in which it constrains what they as students are able to say in the classroom. And so when they find out about our classes, 
they get excited. And our classes get, have great enrollments because of that. And they're fun classes to teach because you get these people in, in the classes that are really thoughtful and, and, and want this kind of discussion. Interestingly, our classes are not filled with conservative students. You know, they're conservative students, but there's students of all kinds in our classes who, who are just there because of the intellectual challenge and because of the excitement of actually getting to press on these issues in an open-minded way. Yeah, that that's my impression as well. I actually spoke uh, the other day to a young woman who uh, had been a fellow at the center, and she said exactly what you say. She said that she came to Boulder thinking one thing, and then she took some classes through the center and realized she didn't quite know what she thought. And so it, it can work a number of ways. Students who think one thing might realize they don't know <laughs> what they actually think. Students who really have no view might begin to then uh, adopt a view. They may switch views. It seems to me to be a good thing for the university. And one thing you and I have, have talked about before is that in order to really teach the other side of any given issue, to do it as effectively as possible at any rate, well, that requires somebody who believes that that is true. Yeah. In other words, I, I know when I teach, you know, I happen not to be a Marxist. I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable confessing that to, to the world right now. Um, <laughs> and so it's hard for me sometimes when I teach Marx to really get behind Marxism. Now I try and I enjoy being a good actor and I took some acting classes when I was young. And so, so I try. But it, it's not the same uh, as hearing it from someone who really believes it, whether it's a, a religious position on pro-life or pro-choice, uh, whether it's a, a political position, whether it's a philosopher one particularly loves or maybe even one one particularly despises. Students should be exposed to people who really believe the thing that they're saying um, yeah, at least once in their academic career. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, by, by the end of a class, you get a sense of where your professor's coming from as hard as, as they might try to kind of cover their tracks in that regard. And yeah, that can't help but carry weight. They're just, they're not going to make the case on the, on the other side in the way that somebody would who really finds those arguments persuasive. I, I remember one student telling me, he, he said something like, yeah, you know, you know, my teacher, he, he 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 always sort of discusses both sides and lets students talk about both sides but every single time the discussion has to end up with his side being right you know and that's the sort of thing it's 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 pretty obvious when you're sitting there as a student it's pretty it's pretty obvious what's going on that's i i think that seems to me to be uh, a great thing for the students i mean speaking of this you know, I suspect the students have learned a lot from you, and you're in a unique position. Um, I've heard you, you know, various lectures that, lectures that have come through and discussions that we've had at the center. You always graciously uh, and introduce yourself as a typical Boulder liberal or standard issue Boulder liberal. Yeah. And so I'm interested to hear from you, how has this, uh, the center, the, its diversity of thought, conservative scholars who come through, certainly your exposure to these things as, as you say, a standard issue Boulder liberal, how has that shaped your manner of thought? And how, on the other end, how do people respond to you who may come to the center thinking the center is one thing? I think if you see Western civilization on the label of something, you usually think, well, I know, I know who these folks are. And then they come and they meet Bob Pass now, and he's not quite that person. So I'm interested both in how you've been affected by being exposed uh, to the wide range of ideas and how your atypical, perhaps political views for, for a center called the Center for Western Civilization has allowed you to maneuver 
and maybe in ways that other folks couldn't and has maybe helped the reception of the center some. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a really complicated question. Definitely, definitely in terms of the response I got from, 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 the, from the people who are the supporters of, of the Center for Western Civ and the Conservative Thought and Policy Program, there was a bit of apprehension about me at first, which was entirely understandable because what they would have expected and I think what they would have wanted is somebody who was much more ideologically attuned to what they were doing. And, and I wasn't that. I was just a typical, I am just a typical, you know, leftist faculty member. And, and so, of course, they kind of thought, what is this guy just going to take our money and run? They, they've gotten over that suspicion. You know, I've been, I've been doing this since 2011, and there uh, a lot of trust has built up over the years. They may still be a bit puzzled about why I do it, but you know, I, I'm the sort of liberal that takes the the, the the classical liberal tradition seriously. That's to say, I take very seriously the value of, of open discourse and the, the sorts of freedoms that allow people to uh, to speak their mind. And, and, and I've got a kind of a trust that maybe some people would regard as naive, but, but I think it's sort of the only game in town, the, the trust that the way forward is to openly debate the issue and let the you know let the most powerful arguments win and 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 that's really the way in which this has most influenced me as, as you can tell from the way I'm talking perhaps to some as a disappointment to some listeners of this podcast my views haven't dramatically changed I'm still I'm still a bolder liberal but I understand the issues so much better than I did when I started doing this. I, I've just, I, I feel so lucky. I've been exposed to just a master class year after year of the best American conservative political thought. And when I started doing this, I really did not understand where conservatives were coming from. And I'm sure most of my colleagues on the faculty still don't understand where conservatives are coming from. I mean, I mean, I know that because I'll have conversations with people and they'll give some sort of caricature of the conservative position on some issue. And, and you know, and if I have the energy, I'll try to explain to them that, no, you know, you're not understanding where they're coming from. And so I sort of talk through, you know, in fact, what's motivating, you know, views in a certain area. And they'll sort of say, oh, really? Is that? No, that's not what they think. And I'll say, yeah, that's really what they think. Um, and it, so I've learned a lot. I've, I've learned a tremendous amount. And it's made me, it sort of reinforced what I felt all along, the importance of of exposing students to both sides of these issues. It's It's made me in a way even angrier about the, the nature of so much contemporary political discourse and how one-sided it is on both sides. It just, it just feels as if people are not even trying very hard to understand where the other side is coming from. And, and I feel more and more as if this country, it can't afford to be so lazy about this stuff. We've got to, we've got to get much more serious about understanding where our fellow citizens are coming from. This, this is good because this leads me to another question, which is, that I've been around CU since 2016 and have come to the center's events and, and have affiliated with the center. You know, in 2017, 2018, I was thinking to myself, you know, there's been a lot of progress at this university, not only at this university, but nationally. It seems to me that there's just a lot of, you know, heterodox media, whether that's Heterodox Academy and its establishment or the work that uh, John Hyde has done, who we had on campus last year, that there's been a lot of uh, attention and light 
shined on this problem of diversity of thought in the academy and that real progress is being made. And so I, I was convinced of that during the three first three years of my time at CU. And I thought, you know, the center's mission is being carried out successfully. We're doing our part on this campus and other folks in the, you know, uh, on other campuses are doing their part. And we've got some, some people who are really speaking up like Hyde and whatnot. And then this summer, the summer we're having this conversation, the summer of 2020 came and I became concerned all over again and worried that the progress may have taken a few steps back or been erased altogether. And so I'm interested to hear from your point of view whether over the course of the center's lifespan, has it made progress? Has there been a tolerance of thought that's been cultivated by some of the center's actions? But more than that, is there a growing intolerance of diversity of thought? And is the center now more important than it's ever been? Is its goal still a worthwhile goal, an achievable goal? Well, for sure, there's powerful headwinds right now against us. You know, we're, we're talking in the summer of 2020, and it's um, it, the, the climate is just brutal out there right now in terms of trying to uh, promote open inquiry. It's, uh, you know, and I think that I think the, the, the pressures against it come are coming from all sides. So, Given that climate nationally and maybe even across the planet, it's it's no wonder if it feels like, you know, at the center in particular, it's a tough time to be doing what we're doing. I, I do think you can see signs that we've had an influence on campus so far. I, it's, it's, it's an important fact about the Boulder campus that although we keep inviting controversial speakers, you know, all kinds of controversial speakers, we haven't had any of the ugly incidents that other campuses had in terms of people being shut down um, and being unable to speak. We, we have never had that sort of thing at one of our events. I guess I should knock on wood at this point, but I, th- I think it's not just a fluke. I think we just, it's, it's not just a matter of being lucky. I think we've really laid the groundwork for, for a kind of tolerance that other campuses don't yet have. And, and I, I, you know, there, there may be other factors that work beyond our center, but I think the center has played an important role in that because we're the ones who keep bringing people in. And I think we've, we've created a kind of expectation that this is, this is how this university works. This is what we do at this university. It's really become part of the identity of the University of Colorado, that, that we have this center, that we hold events like this, that we, that we bring in scholars the way we do. We've, we've developed a national reputation for it. Uh, it, it's become a kind of model for other schools trying to do something similar. And, and I think people just know that about this university. And it's 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 created a climate here for the good that that's kind of it's been internalized by the by students and other faculty. That, that's at least that's at least my hope. And it feels like so far that's been borne out. Yeah, that that seems true to me. And and, you know, one of the things that that strikes me about CU uh, struck me when I first got here was that um, the administration, I assume this could be uh, at the initiative of Bruce Benson, but there's a very strong free speech policy at CU and it's published and it's 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 talked about. For example, when I first got here, I, I remember in 2016, 2017, when this thing was being hammered out, I would get emails about this free speech, uh, academic freedom for both students and faculty uh, policy at the regent level and how it was being created and what it would contain. And this strikes me as as similar in some ways. I was just visiting at Princeton University and they're a university known for their commitment to free speech. And I was there with some other fellows and many of them 
sort of marveled at Princeton's commitment to free speech, which has recently been tested, but as far as I could tell, uh, has been upheld. And CU, I mean, I, I, I agree with what you say that CU does seem to, you know, there haven't been the protests at the at the talks, knock on wood, and that there is a effort by the administration to write what the university thinks about free speech into its regent law. That's so odd. And, it, mm-hmm. and so it strikes me as a great home for a center like the Center for Western Civ for that reason. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. It's uh, we're, we're we're kind of lucky that things have come together in the way in the way they have, and uh, a, a large part of that is due to Bruce Benson, who we really you know has exercised such leadership on this. And you know, there there was just no doubt that when he retired, the center would be named after him because um, he's he's really the person who made it happen. Uh, you know, I and I and other people who have been you know hands on running the thing have you know been working hard to make it happen, but none of that would have been possible if he hadn't uh, taken the lead. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think uh, the, is, is in store for the future of the center? You know, we talked, I mentioned a moment ago that, you know, the summer of 2020 has caused a lot of people in a lot of different institutions, higher ed uh, and others, to reconsider, you know, freedom of inquiry, its, its contours and how it works. There's a lot of controversy, at least right now, while we're having this talk surrounding this issue. What do you think is in the center's future. What can the center do under its new leadership to continue doing what it's done in the past, which is to make a home at CU for free inquiry? What, what do you think the future of the center holds and how should it position itself going forward? Well, I'm, I'm real excited to find out. Uh, I'm, I'm stepping down as director and uh, after, after 10 years or so, and Dan Jacobson is taking over and you're taking over as associate director. And um, I think I, I, I've got every expectation it's going to just keep growing and getting better. I think it's a, it's, it's an exciting time for a number of reasons. For, for one thing, as, as you've been stressing, it, this is a time at which these values really need defense. And, it, it, you know, it's not clear who out there is up for defending values of, of free inquiry. And so it, it creates an enormous opportunity for the center to, to take that on and to champion those causes. It's also a time at which it's, it's kind of up for grabs what it means to be a conservative, or, or at any rate, in the American context, for sure, up for grabs what it means to be a Republican. You know, the upcoming election is going to... Um, you know, be very interesting in terms of what it means for the future of the Republican Party. And and we'll know a lot more about that in, in November and December as the dust settles from the election. But this could be a time ahead of us at, at which American conservatives really are faced with rethinking what uh, what the Republican Party looks like. And in as much as uh, the Benson Center has one of its missions to try to uh, kind of think about uh, conservative intellectual traditions, that's that's a task that this center can can take part in, and, and I think that's tremendously exciting. Let me ask you, I'd like to hear whether there's something that you've worked on in your own intellectual life that made you, I, I know you study, of course, medieval uh, philosophy. Is there something that you've thought about or some author to whom you've been exposed that has in some way influenced uh, you and your views of the mission of the center and why uh, a center like the Center for Western Civ is important? I don't think there's a particular author, but I do think uh, the, when I first started, started college, I thought I was going to be a, a history major. And then I kind of got sucked into philosophy 
Um, well, first I got sucked into intellectual history and then I got sucked into philosophy. And what I realized I really love is, is, is the, the, the ongoing connection of ideas through the centuries and the, and these grand debates that happen over time in the history of philosophy. And I love the kind of the free flow of ideas and the arguments and, uh, that that's what the whole history of philosophy is all about. And that's, that's kind of my ideal of intellectual inquiry that you make the argument and then the other side makes its argument and you respond to the arguments. And, you know, I've never been, I'm, I'm kind of the farthest thing possible, possible from a student of rhetoric. I'm not, I'm not interested in rhetoric. I get, I get completely bored by political speeches that are just exercises in rhetoric. Um, I care about people making reasoned arguments and, and following those arguments and seeing which side seems more compelling. That's the thing I find exciting about philosophy. And so when I see, when I see that not happening, in the context of a university, when it looks like one side is not even able to air the arguments, when it looks like there's some kind of dogma that's emerged that just, you know, holds fixed certain principles and isn't even able to consider the other side, I, that really bothers me. I find that seriously alarming. And so um, I, I think that's why it's such a natural thing for me to, to play this sort of role, not, not as someone who wants, uh, you know, I'm not myself out there making the case for conservative ideals, but I'm just kind of out there giving people a platform to make those arguments. And then I very much hope the other side comes back and, and pushes back. You know, my, my ideal of a perfect event would be uh, an event at which the audience is split 50-50, you know, in favor of against the speaker. The speaker makes a passioned case for his or her, you know, position. And then you get all of these people in the audience pushing back and, and pushing back hard, you know, I mean, I mean, really arguing respectfully, but, but you know, really forcefully stating their view back. And, and so everybody leaves feeling like, wow, all right, I, I really understand this debate. Uh, and you know whether or not anybody's mind was changed, it, it can take a long time to change people's minds. But 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 that's what I really hope for is an atmosphere in which people can can really hear um, the reasons on on both sides of an argument. Yeah, it occurs to me. I mean, this is interesting what you say because you say that. Well, I'm interested. Uh, I got interested in you know the the importance of making arguments, um, allowing each side to have their say by way of the study of the history of philosophy and listening to minds, great minds do that uh, back and forth through the ages, as it were. And this occurs to me as, uh, as something that's worth pointing out as important because it provides a defense of freedom of speech and freedom of inquiry that's not simply liberal in character because the possibility of philosophy or the genesis of philosophy is much older than liberalism and its genesis. You know, we can go all the way back to the Academy of Ancient Greece. And so it seems to me that what you see here, what's at stake is not just uh, not just liberalism and, and that, that a defense of the center's mission doesn't have to be made merely within the contours or restrictions of, say, uh, Lockean liberalism or, or uh, mill on liberty or something like that. That this is, what's at stake here is really what Aristotle was doing, um, what Socrates was doing, what the sophists, um, that this is a much older enterprise um, and is it's hitched 
inextricably to the academy insofar as the academy is itself Greek. It's not merely liberal, although it is part and parcel of liberalism, friendly to liberalism, and at the heart of liberalism. Yeah, that's right. And you can see you can see the demise of this sort of program in places where you see hostility to philosophy. In, um, in the Islamic tradition, um, there's a grand philosophical tradition in Islam that takes, uh, that takes Greek antiquity as its foundation um, and for centuries did wonderful work in philosophy. And then the religious pressures from Islam started to shut that down. And at a certain point, Islamic philosophy doesn't develop in the impressive way it does in, in the European tradition. You can, see, you can see in other places as well. Um, a, a, for instance, in the Soviet Union, you can see philosophy simply did not flourish. Uh, there wasn't space there for that sort of inquiry. And I think there's a real, uh, you know, you know wh- where you see where you see philosophy flourishing is a place where you see the kind of free exploration of ideas uh, happening, and that's that's as healthy a sign as there can be for for our uh, for our institutions. Is there an event uh, that the center has hosted in your tenure as as its director that you were nervous about, or that it turned out? Maybe you shouldn't have been nervous about, but you were, or that you should have been nervous about, but you weren't. Um, in other words, there are, you know, there are, this is a rocky road. And, and we, we've said already that the faculty and administration have been largely supportive, but certainly that's not always the case. If it, if it was always the case, I think we wouldn't be doing our job. Uh, so I, I think we, you know, it's, it's uh, in a way good to rock the boat a bit. And I'm just curious if in your in your institutional memory, if there's any period at which the boat was rocked and you didn't expect it or that you thought it might be rocked and it wasn't. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, part of what makes it a great question is that I think the center really, uh, it, it's the place where the center is most at danger because it's it's where it's the particular events we run the particular people that we invite to campus and that are speaking in the forums we create where we're most vulnerable to criticism because there's there's just you put somebody up on stage and there's no controlling what they might say what might happen what kind of question might get asked how they might answer that question and if they say something outrageous or something that strikes people as outrageous it could be a huge traumatic event for the center. We haven't had anything terrible so far. We we haven't had an event that's created, you know, headline controversy. Uh, and, and I hope we don't. That's that sort of thing. You know, I guess there are people out there that like that kind of controversy. But but as far as the center goes, I don't think that does us any sort of good. A, a couple of events that come to mind is a student group a few years back invited invited Milo Yiannopoulos to campus, who was at that time this notorious provocateur. And um, we were in touch with this student group and, and they sort of said, hey, you want to co-sponsor that with us? A- at the time, I had never heard of this guy. And all I really knew was, oh, well, a student group wants to invite somebody to campus. Yeah, maybe we should join in with that. But it took about 15 seconds of research, you know, we just looked the guy up on the internet and it took about 15 seconds to see, no, this is not somebody that we want to be associated with because it, it was just immediately obvious that he's, he's somebody who's, who's making the rounds just to create publicity for himself and just to create controversy for the sake of controversy. And so we said, no, thank you. We don't want to do that. 
and that was a fairly ugly event. There were protesters and um, it was just, you know, it, it was all, you know, just a show. There was no serious intellectual conversation happening there. So we felt very lucky to have dodged that bullet. Someone we did sponsor and that we did bring to campus who was controversial was Heather McDonald. Uh, we brought her out a couple of years ago. She's been a very outspoken uh, critic of diversity on college campuses. And she thinks that the, the, the kind of the drive to diversify campuses in terms of race, in terms of gender, is really destructive um, for the university mission. And we, we looked at her work and we thought, yeah, this is this is an argument we'd like to hear. This, you know, people just in this context, in a university context, people take for granted these ideals as if they're just simply can't even be argued. We thought, you know, let's let's hear the argument. Let's talk about it. And so we brought her out. It it was it was very controversial. A lot of the faculty were extremely unhappy about it. And even even once she came and spoke, people were still unhappy about it. They, they didn't like her speech. I myself had reservations about it. it it's, I wouldn't describe it as, as one of our more successful events. And part of what made it frustrating is when you bring somebody out, you know, as I, as I was saying before, what, what I want is I want to have an engaged, serious debate over the person's message. But what tends to happen is you bring somebody out who holds a certain position and the people who come to hear the talk all agree with the speaker and all hold the same position. And so, it, you know, whether it's on the left or the right, it turns into a kind of love fest. And that's what happened in this case for the most part. And Heather McDonald wasn't really pressed very hard on what she was saying, and I think everybody just felt a bit dissatisfied by it. Uh, one, one of the lessons I took from that experience is how important it is to try to hold events that represent a range of points of views, and not just to have a single speaker representing a single point of view, but to invite out some people who come from different perspectives. It's it's more complicated to organize events like that, but but I think it's completely worth it. You get better audiences and you get a better exchange of ideas when you do it that way. It's also difficult, I mean... You say that, well, there were a lot of faculty who, who took issue with Heather McDonald's talk, but then you, you mentioned at the same time that she wasn't pressed. And it's unclear to me why, you know, if there were issues at the talk and whatnot, why wasn't she pressed publicly? Um, did people attend? You see what I mean? Did those people who, who had a problem with it go? And if they went, were they just, you know, si silent out of politeness? Or how do you get people to... To who who might you know somebody who might look her up and say oh no uh, who, you know who might be critical of her not to say uh, well I'm just not going to go to that because this person is not somebody I want to hear but rather to say uh, no this person is somebody I deeply disagree with I can't wait to go and press them in the Q and A is there yeah. a, is there a secret to <laughs> I, I I would like to know it's it's a real problem you know it, it's part of the same problem that leads conservatives to exclusively watch Fox News and liberals to exclusively watch CNN and so people kind of get in their own kind of thought bubbles and don't you know go out of their way to be exposed to other points of view and so I think a lot of people just thought you know Heather McDonald no I completely disagree with this I'm not going to that talk when instead, you know, what I wish they'd do is say, I'm, I don't agree with this at all. I have to go and I have to explain to her, you know, why I disagree and why I think she's wrong. And, and, it, and it was like nobody, nobody there took responsibility for doing that. 
I shouldn't say nobody. There, there were a few pointed exchanges that I thought were were very valuable, and I was grateful for. But for the most part, there was very there was very little resistance to her, even though she was coming to speak on a campus um, where you know the vast majority, at least among faculty and administrators, the vast majority disagreed uh, with what she was saying. But they just they they you know they did not turn up. Let me ask you this question in closing, Bob. We want to keep you involved with the center however we can. Uh, you've done such a terrific job over these past years. You, you know, you're the reason I'm here. You're the reason Dan's here. I mean, your fingerprints are on every initiative and every person um, that's that's uh, that occupies the center right now. So how do you see yourself playing a role in the center for the rest of your career at CU? What, what kinds of things would you like to do? We don't want to give you too much. I think you have a well-deserved break. But on the other hand, I think it would be a shame for us not to make use of your expertise. So how, what do you see your contributions being uh, going forward? Well, I'm glad to hear you want to keep me around because from my perspective, the hardest thing is going to be uh, letting go at all because it's so, it's been so rewarding to be involved and, and so fun to watch grow that I, I'm not sure I could walk away even if I wanted to. Uh, the thing I mean, the thing I really want to do is I want to stay involved intellectually. You know, I want to, I want to go to talks. I want to be involved in, in, in reading groups with students. I want to, uh, you know, go to the various seminars that we run. I mean, that's the really fun part. You know, it may be that you can talk me into some sort of administrative capacity in one way or another, but, um, you know, that stuff I'll duck as much as I can um, and hope you'll just let me uh, stay involved. And, and the part that's really great is is the uh, the exchange of ideas that just, you know, is, is constantly happening at the center. It's going to be, you know, we're still in the COVID era. And so uh, this fall, we're not going to be, you know, able to do all the things we'd like to do. But I'm, I'm looking ahead to the time when every week, you know, we'll be running, you know, one or more events. And so it's just going to be this constant, glorious opportunity to engage, uh, to engage, engage in these conversations. And you will, uh, you'll certainly see me at a lot of events. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And I frankly, you know, can't wait uh, to see you and engage in intellectual discourse with you. And I just want to thank you for your work at the center, for for creating such a wonderful place, uh, for doing such a favor, not just uh, to the center, but to see you and really to higher education more broadly to create a center that can serve as a model for, for so many other institutions. So Bob Passnow, thank you very much. The Free Mind Podcast is produced by the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization at the University of Colorado at Boulder. You can email us feedback at freemind@colorado.edu, or visit us online at colorado.edu slash center slash Benson.